to be technically and theologically accurate. Peter is talking about the day of the Lord, the return of God. He's talking about a time that all the prophets have in unison predicted would come when God comes to, as it were, settle accounts. You've probably heard Johnny Cash talk about it as well, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw and behold a white horse. Okay. There's a man going around taking names and he decides who to free and who to blame. Everybody, he says, won't be treated just the same. He describes the phenomenon that it will be the hairs on your arms will stand up at the terror of each sip and of each sup. Will you partake of that last offered cup? Or will you go down and disappear into the potter's ground? Boom, 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 boom. When the man comes around. Sorry. It's moving if you hear it. Google it. Watch it on YouTube, buy it on iTunes, I don't care. You need to listen to Johnny Cash if you want to be sanctified. <laughs> his voice alone, textured as his is, unlike mine, with way more whiskey than I've had and way more inhaled substances of various sorts than I've had, his voice is better. But he speaks there of this coming time which the Bible speaks with great unity about. And Peter here speaks again with some sobriety about. And it can be a kind of frightening thing to consider. But what he's trying to do is he's trying to get us to remember eternity and the value of this short blip as Scott Jones would say, rounding error of our lives. Scott, the professor, who's now become the most preeminent Old Testament professor in the United States of America. Is that right, Scott? Is that what we're calling you? <laughs> close, close. He's young yet. It'll happen. He's only 22. He started having kids at age 12. But Scott in teaching wisdom literature once, came up with this idea. He said, you know, if you had a history test and someone asked you when something happened and you said, it happened in about 1400. And someone said, no, uh -uh. it actually happened in 1470. You would kind of be like, uh, <laughs> close enough. I was in the right century. And he said, you see, that's about what a human life is. It's a rounding error from a historical perspective. You could be off 70 years on a history test and think, I was close enough. And that's about what our lives are. And so it is very easy to have a kind of what one author would call eternity amnesia. We're forgetful people. We tend to think this now is all there is now. And which begins to inform the way we interpret everything that happens to us. We start to imagine, for instance, 
that we're being singled out when horrid things come into our lives, that we're being ignored or neglected or worse, toyed with. You know, in that famous Oscar-snubbed movie, Bruce Almighty, when things start to unravel and the wheels of his life start to fall off, he envisions God as this gigantic bully. This bully kid who's got a magnifying glass and all we are is little ants scurrying about on an anthill. And God is this cruel bully kid refracting the light through the magnifying glass trying to burn us up, taking a perverse delight in our destruction. And of course, he comes to a different realization as he gets to deal with Morgan Freeman, I mean God. What Peter wants us to do is not be amnesiacs. He says, as he has said earlier, dear friends or beloved, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of, the, both of them to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. He wants to stimulate us to holy thinking. He wants us to remember the time in which we're, we are, where we dwell, what's going to happen, because he thinks this has a great bearing on who we become. And one of the questions that I'll put to you today, I think it's behind what Peter says here, and it's behind all the life of faith, is what do you do with the apparent delays of God? How do you interpret the delays of God? The waiting. Because my guess is, if we individually lined you all up, like in a kindergarten class along the wall here, as if you were waiting to go to the bathroom or to the cafeteria... And we started with Ben Hubbard here, and we had everybody come up to the mic. There's not a soul in here who doesn't have something in their life about which they've asked God to do something. Something that you've asked him to remove, to take away, to alter, or something you've asked him to put in, to bring into your life. And for some inexplicable reason to you, he has not done it. And so you have to ask In your individual life, why does he delay? When you do that, you become like the psalmist. Why, O Lord, do you stand so far off in times of trouble? How long? That's a favorite phrase of the psalmist. How long, O Lord? How long must I wait? How long must I wrestle every day with my thoughts and have anguish in my soul? How long must I deal with this chronic pain in my back and this battered and bruised heart afflicted with a dread disease of loneliness. How long? And everybody in the world has to make a decision. How will I interpret the fact that God does not seem to be responding to our requests in a quick way? And how do we deal with the fact That Jesus has not returned yet, even though when you read the Bible, it makes it sound like he's going to be coming perhaps next Tuesday. Why hasn't he come? What's behind the delay? How do you interpret it? Well, so Peter would start out and say, here's one interpretive possibility that happens actually quite frequently. 
He says, first of all, you must understand that in the last days, which, side note, nota bene, in the Bible, the last days has been happening for 2,000 years. When Jesus got up, we entered them. The end. We've been in the last days for a long time. They haven't just started with the formation of an Israeli state or something like this in 1949. You must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. So Peter is making a very astute observation here. He's telling us that God's patience is the reason for his delay. Okay? He tells us later, don't forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years, like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He's very interested in everybody having a relationship with him, being altered, knowing life as it was intended to be, so he waits. That's the apostolic interpretation of God's delay. God waits because he's patient. God waits because he's wanted to extend the enrollment period Just like you might want everybody to get health insurance, you might extend that enrollment period. You might open up your arms wider. God's opened up his arms wider and extended the enrollment period. I want everybody to dwell with me in the new earth. I want them to lay down arms and no forgiveness and no refreshing and no life as it was intended to be. That's the divine apostolic, well, you might not think it's divine, the apostolic reason for God's delay. But he says, here's a way you might interpret the delay. Scoffing. Scoffing and following your own evil desire, saying, where is this, and Andrew read it right, coming. If they were talking, if Peter was giving a sermon, he would say, where is this, and he would use air quotes, because they use it all the time in the first century, coming. They didn't use air quotes, probably. Where is this coming that he promised? Since our fathers died, everything has gone on since the beginning of creation, just the same. This is a farce. We know good and well. They're 30 years out. We're 2,000. What are we to think? They know good and well. This isn't going to happen. Jesus isn't actually going to come back. This can't be believed. But I would have you notice something interesting here. He says, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. And when he says this, he is making a claim about how knowledge works. How belief works. Do you realize there are a lot of things about what you believe that don't have to do with evidence? They don't have to do with facts necessarily. They have to do with what kind of person you are. They have to do with what you've already decided you're willing or not willing to believe. With what you are capable of believing. With what kind of goodness you have. With what kind of badness you have. With what kind of commitments and loyalties and wishes and wants you have. You're... Inscape, as Gerald Manley Hopkins once said, determines your landscape. That's why Peter earlier can say, I want to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. Wholesome thinking. He's not talking about the rated G Disney thinking. He means a kind of thinking that accords with your moral commitments. This is what knowledge is. It's this inner framework, this character that you have inside you that affects 
what you're actually able to see, what you're actually able to give yourself to. And Peter recognizes that some scoffing, not all, but some scoffing, and let's use another word, mocking, making jokes about, derisive comments. Think of a continuous Saturday Night Live skit in regards to the second coming. If you can mock something, you don't have to believe it. If you can make a joke about it, you can keep your distance from it. Peter recognizes that behind some scoffing is a person standing there with their fingers crossed behind their backs, hoping that what they're scoffing is not true because they don't want it to be true. There's a philosopher at NYU called Thomas Nagel, and he said this, which I think is about the most honest rendition of a thing I have seen. And I think this exists behind a lot of people who do not believe anything about the scriptures or do not believe in God. If you scratch them hard enough, if you poke far enough down, you will find a sentiment like this one. He says this, I want atheism to be true. I want it to be true. And I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God, it's that I hope there is no God. Settle that in for a minute. It's not just that I say, there's no God, I don't believe in God, it's that down deep I'm actually hoping there isn't a God. That would be rather inconvenient for me. I don't want there to be a God, he says, with a refreshing kind of honesty. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want to live in a universe like that. Scoffing and evil desires, unbelief and commitments of one's heart are very often tied together. That's why There are certain things even in your own life, if you're not a scoffer that says, hey, I don't believe in the second coming. You might believe in the second coming, sort of. But there are things about the scriptures that are taught to you. And some of why you can't believe them is because you're not prepared to. You don't want them to be true. I'll give you an example. The Bible is pretty explicit on its domestic policy regarding marriages. It says things like this. It says mild things like, I hate divorce. That's what, sincerely, God. (laughs) And Jesus says, when he's talking about marriage, he says, well, yeah, Moses let you get divorced. That's because your hearts were filled with battery acid and you were getting, you're spewing on each other and something's wrong with you. So it was an accommodation to awfulness. But that's not what God's intention was from the beginning. And when his disciples heard him talking about his domestic policy on domesticity. You following me here? Here's what their conclusion was. Just demonstrating that they understood what he was saying. Holy cow, man, if that's right, we should never get married. That was their conclusion when they heard Jesus teach about marriage. Not like, why can't I find a spouse? And they were like, man, I should never find a spouse. Because we're going to be linked up together forever. 
And Jesus didn't say, no, 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 guys, you don't understand. If it gets hard, you can leave. He says, you got it. Some people, some people can't accept this, and some people, you know, can. So if you can accept it, you know, be like the Apostle Paul and don't get married. Otherwise, good luck with that. But you know what I've found sometimes is sometimes when somebody wants to, and I'm not talking about anybody in here in particular, okay? So don't come up to me and think I'm talking about you. I'm not talking about anyone in particular. I'm talking about a generic person in the sky. But let me tell you this, this happens. Sometimes when somebody wants a divorce, a Christian person, and they know God doesn't like this, they've already decided whether they realize it fully or not, and they're not going to disclose this. They'll have a certain kind of honesty, but one of the first things you learn to start to suspect is behind their desire to get out of this marriage is they got their heart attached to someone else somewhere. They might not have disclosed this yet. It will come out in a lot of marriages. Do you hear me say a lot of marriages? Not every marriage. Did you hear me say not every marriage? Just a lot of marriages. But when somebody wants a divorce, sometimes they've, they're saying, I just can't do it anymore. And they've got their fingers crossed behind their backs. They think, Jesus can't surely mean, and they'll start saying these things like, Jesus surely would want me to be happy. This is the most thoughtless and oft-repeated refrain for people doing whatever the heck they want. Surely Jesus would like me to live my life in a perpetual candy store eating ice cream for breakfast. They say this. They don't say it like that. I'm Marshawn Lynch. All I can eat, I get like this by eating Skittles. But behind their desire to say, I can't do this marriage, is they've already decided they don't want to do this marriage and they don't want this to be true. There's a lot of things when we come to the Bible, we don't want them to be true, if we're honest. And so if we don't want them to be true, we're prepared to find any reason to find they're not true. You understand this? That's why it's so refreshing to someone say, I don't want there to be a God. That's why I don't believe in God. I don't want there to be one. Now, that's not every case everywhere, but there is a connection. You find yourself scoffing, mocking, deriding. Pause for a second and ask yourself, is there something here that's getting awfully close to me that I don't want to make a claim on my life, and so I have decided I'm just going to poke fun at it. Because anything I can poke fun at, I can just dismiss. Who has to believe a joke? And so I can lampoon the man who has a nervous breakdown in his congregation and tells his parishioners that they ain't worth five cents. See, all them religious people, they're crazy. And I can dismiss the whole thing. Scoffing and desires are connected. There's certain kinds of things we find not to be true because we don't want them to. And then we say things like this. Have you ever said it or heard it said? I can't believe in a God who would do that or who would require that. Because, of course, God is something that you imagine. The God who made the universe is the one that you thought up in your head, right? That's a rhetorical question. No, you see, that's what's happening, though, when you say things like that. I can't believe in a God like that. It's like this atheist man saying... I don't want to live in a universe like that. Well, fine. But it doesn't matter, you see, because if there is a God, you didn't invent him. He invented you. And that's where the inconvenience kind of drops into our lives. Because for a lot of us, we can resonate 
when we're driving down the highway and we're listening to Fabulous. <laughs> Guess what time it is? It's my, my, my time. You can check your iPhone, better say it's my time, I time. I don't even need a watch. I don't even need a clock. As soon as I walk in the club, it feels like me o'clock. Woo! As soon as I walk in the club, it feels like me o'clock. And see, that's the problem. Every time you walk in anywhere, it feels like me o'clock, doesn't it? I love, I love that. I think it's hilarious. Some of these songs that I'm forced to listen to, I listen to, and then I chuckle. I like it that he's bold enough to just come right out and say it. Make no bones about it. The world is running on my timetable. It's my time to shine. I don't even need a watch. What time you got? Me (laughs) o'clock. Terrell Owens said the same thing. I love me some me. And of course, that's the problem when it comes to determining what's behind the delay. What's behind the delay of Jesus coming back? What's behind the delay of Jesus not answering these prayers where I need him to take away or put into my life something that's awful? Or I need him to put in something that's good? Why is he delaying? But a lot of times it's because we're thinking, it's me o'clock. And God is not operating on my timetable. Why isn't he? As if he's your butler. And you wake up in the morning and you snap and you ring a bell. And all of a sudden you're in a Downton Abbey episode and he's coming to dress you. But God isn't coming to dress you. You exist for him, not the other way around. That can sound harsh. You see, it's quite a burden if you walk around thinking that you're God or that your imagination of God is the one ruling things. Because then everything that happens is a calculated slight against you. And everything that happens in the world is about you and your world gets narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower. And you are stuck, as Muggeridge said, in the gloomy little dungeon of yourself. And there's no worse place to be. For a time, it's fun to kind of run around and do whatever you wish all the time. But at some point, you realize this is a very hollow existence, and I can't make God. Scoffing and evil desires are often very much connected. Who you are determines a lot of what you believe. And some things you don't believe are because you don't want to believe them. You've got a vested interest in not believing them. But God has so configured things. Behind this delay, Peter tells us that God has so configured things according to his timer, not according to people who say it's me o'clock. And he has opened himself up to the charge of misgovernance, of malfeasance, of mismanaging and misappropriating his resources on the earth. So that all kinds of people can levy charges against them. They don't levy them against themselves normally. But he does it, Peter says, because he's waiting. Because he knows that in your life individually and in the life of the world corporately, that one day things are going to be in such a way that no one's going to say, why did you do it like that? You're not even going to remember. It's going to be like a distant, faint dream that you can only barely come up with. That's what Paul says, your slight and momentary troubles are achieving a glory that far outweighs anything you've put up with now. And so God's willing to be misunderstood. 
He waits because he's patient. He's not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slows. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But let me tell you this. If God is accused of being indifferent, uncaring, not right, because he waits, because he doesn't intervene, all kinds of people make charges against God, all the suffering in the world. George Carlin said, I tried to believe in God, I really did. But he's like a bad temp worker. It's like a temporary employee, I'm not impressed. This is not the resume of a divine being. And God is willing to open himself up to charges like that because he's willing to let the universe play out in a way that we don't understand. And Peter says it's because he wants people to know him. So he's willing to wait and be misunderstood. Do you know that this also means if his sovereign son, the Lord Jesus, with whom you are not united, if he's badly misunderstood in the waiting, you will be too. You'll be falsely accused of things. The early church, you know, they were accused of being atheists. Atheists! Because they worshipped one God. And not the Roman gods. They were accused of being seditious because they wouldn't bow the knee to Caesar. They bowed the knee to Christ. They were accused of being cannibals. Cannibals. That means, if you don't know your words, they like to eat people. Because they ate the body and the blood of Christ. Today, if you submit yourself to the scripture in any compelling way, and it's teaching us about sexuality, it's teachings about marriage, it's teachings about greed and humility, you will be accused of being a bigot, of being harsh and judgmental, of being someone who destroys others with your beliefs. One author said to pastors, he said, look, If you're going to be a pastor like Jesus, he had 12 disciples. 11 of them never got his illustrations and one of them tried to kill him. That's probably going to be the case in your life. You can't take me on though. But God has set up these conditions that allow him to be mocked. But he waits. He's being mocked all the time. He's being disregarded all the time. People are saying all the time, I don't care what you say about my body. I'll do what I want with it. I'll do what I want with my body sexually, or if it comes to an abortion, or if it comes to hooking up, I'll do what I want. I'll do what I want with my money. It's my life. It's me o'clock. And God waits. And he's patient because he doesn't want people to perish. He doesn't want them to go the way of their evil desires. But he is patient because he he wants people to come to know him. Another application of this, let me th- think of this with you. You know that dude, Penn uh, Gillette, I think his name is, uh, Penn and Teller? He's one of these guys, I think if you scratch the surface, you'd find out he doesn't want God to be true either. He's a very militant kind of atheist person. But he says this, If you really believe that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and that he is coming back one day to judge, as we say in our creeds, the quick and the dead, the living and the dead, he's coming to pronounce a verdict on all human life, to say, you're opposed to me, you're kicked out of the heart of things. 
saying to you, welcome into the very smile of God that you've been longing for all your life. If you really believe that it boils down to your relationship to this Savior, how much must you hate, he said hate, other people to not try to convert them? This is an unbeliever saying this. But he's making a logical conclusion, a deduction. If we really believe this is true, this is not a matter of private belief. We believe this is public policy. We believe that Jesus is actually sovereignly ruling over the earth, that he actually came. We're not believing contra evidence. We believe that a lot of people saw him on the earth, that he died in the grossest miscarriage of justice that ever has been perpetrated, but turned justice on its head, was resurrected from the dead. These people saw him with marks where the nails had been. It transformed them, and they had to re evaluate and reinterpret all of human history. Oh my gosh, we got to listen to this guy. He was raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He's coming back. Everything he said has happened so far. We got to believe him. He can cleanse our sins. He can empower us to be bold. He can give us a new kind of life. We have to listen to him. And if we believe this is not just a matter of good advice, it is a public truth. It is an accounting for the way the world actually is, even if no government official believes it. Even if nobody on ESPN Radio or Fox News or Rachel Maddow or whoever you like or somebody on you hipsters listening to your NPR, even if nobody listens to this or believes this, we believe it's a public truth to frame your life to. And if we believe it, shouldn't we try to convert people to it? I'm stung by those words. How much must you hate somebody to not try to get them to believe this? There are people right now in your life that God has placed you around. You could be praying, oh, Lord, you want people. And you could use his own words. You're waiting. Jesus has not come back. It's been a long time. Jesus has not come back because he wants people to come to know him. He doesn't want them to be eaten up with guilt. He doesn't want them to be eaten up with shame. He doesn't want them to be confused in the world. He wants them to know God. He wants them to escape being ruled by every, every desire and emotion they have. He wants them to become stewards, not victims of themselves. Most of the people you know are just ruled by whatever happens to they have every I'm about to malfunction. Calm down. It's really hot in here. That's why I'm overheating. My thermostat's stuck. Got a yoga pose for me, anyone? Okay. I start doing this stuff, and then who knows what I'm saying? I don't know where I was. Anybody? Anyone? Bueller? Huh? (laughs) Thank you. I'm going to take my shirt off. Okay. Who knows what I was saying? We have to ask God, who wants people to know him, to start acting on them and to use us as instruments to invite them in to this knowledge. Most people, this is what I was saying, most people wake up in the morning and they are ruled by a thousand masters. A lot of people in this room are. Whatever you happen to think, whatever you happen to feel, you give it the weight of divinity. And it rules you and it knocks you around and you're just moved about every second by your own desires and they're not trying to bolster you. They're just tugging you along in a thousand different ways. 
and you come into the mastery of this Savior who is patient, can give you a right to be patient with other people, to not give up on anybody, to be patient with yourself because God has been. Some of you are in the middle of parenting and you hit these moments of despair. Your four-year-old child is in such a way. See, not all four-year-olds are wanting to make burning sacrifices to God. Most of them are wanting to burn down your house. And you look at them and you say, what's wrong with us? We're such failures. We've done terrible jobs. We don't know anything about our kids. And like, look at the Conrad kids. They're so wonderful. You know, you look at some other. There you go. But the Conrad kids know what it's like when they get behind closed doors. I mean, not the Conrad kids, the Conrads. That was all impromptu. But you know, you can be patient. You can realize, you know what? Just like with God in this macro level, it's not over yet. With my kids, it's not over yet. We're in this thing for a long haul. In my business, in my church, in my relationships, it's not over yet. We're in this for the long haul. We can be patient. We can wait and watch God work. We can co-labor with Him. C.S. Lewis says that a verdict eventually will be rendered. And this is what Peter says. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. I think most people would recognize they're talking here in very apocalyptic language, a lot of figurative language. Something cataclysmic is going to happen. We know there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Something's going to happen to this one. Is it going to be totally transformed? Is it going to be refined? Is it going to blow? I don't know. Sorry. But he says we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. And that's what Isaiah said too. Jesus said, behold, I make all things new. But the thing that's important to do is to take this into account. He says a lot of earnest religious people, one of the things they'll do when it comes to the second coming is they'll get all riled up about it and want to invoke a lot of fear. But the problem with that is you can't stay afraid all the time. You can't stay anything all the time. You can't stay happy. You can't stay anxious. You can't, well, some people can't. You can't stay fearful every second about the same thing. These things come and go. You can't live in fear or in total anticipation of the second coming, but you can always have it taken into account. He says an old man, an 85-year-old man, I'm changing the uh, actuarial charts from when he said it, because he said it like 100 years ago, 50 years ago. An 85-year-old man should not be talking about his impending death all the time. You know, that would annoy people. But he should certainly take it into account. He would be a fool if he's age 85 to enter into, a, let's say, a 30-year mortgage. Because he's just not likely to be able to carry out and pay that debt. To enter into a long-term arrangement at age 85, he's just not going to... It would be foolish of him. But he would also be foolish of him not to take into account that reality and therefore not have a will. To not realize, like, I'm going to die and my years left are much less than the years I've had. So I probably at least need to have a will. He says, we need to take these things into account. That one day what's happening is that Jesus is going to kind of drop in. And this is like a worst fear for a lot of you. He's going to drop into your house 
at just the wrong time, and he's going to knock on the door and go, oh no, look at this place. And you're going to open the door, and he's going to see how you really live. Isn't that one of the worst nightmares for some people that he, Jesus would just, that, they, that a neighbor would just drop in? The dishes undone, shoes strewn about, clothes hanging from the chandelier. What? No, I'm not talking about a college dormer. But he's going to come. He's going to give a verdict, he says. And that's what Peter says. He's, there's going to be a judgment. Everything is going to be laid bare. And this verdict is going to be absolutely true. He's going to say what kind of people we are. Now here's the good news. Peter keeps talking to his dear friends, to his beloved, to people who have received the faith, who are participating in the divine nature, who have been ripped out of the heart of darkness, the kingdom of darkness, and placed into the kingdom that he loves. Once they were no people, now they're the people of God. Once they had not received mercy, now they're people who have received mercy. He knows that the only thing that people like us have to offer God is our sin and our need. And so people who have come to him, when Jesus comes to find a verdict, will we'll say, ha ha, we've been looking for you. I've been wanting you to fix me. And then he will totally. But he says, others... Other, a verdict is going to be pronounced and they're going to be pushed aside. And you can't imagine God, you shouldn't imagine God going, ha, 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 boom, and kicking him out the door. But it's better when he refers to this original destruction in the time of Noah. We're told he looked down and he saw that the evil, the, the inclinations of men's heart were evil all the time. And it pained his heart that he had made them. He grieved. It hurts him. He's so interactive with the world that all the things that people say, you don't care about, they ache in his heart. He's going to repair them one day so that that ache will be interminably eradicated, never to revive. But right now we wait. And the person of faith says, why are we waiting? Is it because God doesn't care? Or is it because he's awfully, awfully patient? Peter says it's because he's patient. Will you be the people of patience? Who invite others to know the patient God? Who will take everything that they hate about themselves and hurl it into the sea and welcome them into the heart of things? Will we remain silent? Will we be willing as patient people, to be misunderstood as we live a life in obedience to Him, not in obedience to ourselves? We'll be misunderstood. We'll be maligned. Can we be patient like the God who is patient and leaves Himself open to mockability? But one day, there will be no mocking. There will only be bowing. There will only be rejoicing and the banishing of those who want nothing to do with Him. Let us be those who rejoice, who go to him often, looking for him to make all things new. Amen.